Hi guys, we are back again and today we are so excited to have the director of the Pride and Prejudice Theatre Show from Bharat Art Theatre, oh my god, At, in Victoria, right? Yes, well done. <laughs> yes, as you can see, we are really nervous in general. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, but usually nobody can see us, but this time... So is that yeah. me doing peer pressure so that everyone will see you as well? <laughs> Completely fine. So we're excited because Ashwini and I love the book and we cannot believe we got someone here <laughs> who's actually the director <laughs> of the play. Wow. You have no so, idea. It is an honor. Thank you so much, Liana, for coming. I'm so excited to be like when you guys asked I was like really yeah thank you thank you for asking so you guys have listened to our adaption well I have heard parts of it here yep it's very nice yeah it's uh if normally if people have listened to the whole thing I'm really impressed because it's 14 and a half hours in total so if someone says I have listened to all of it I'm like why that's that's a lot well done you need a badge like it's it's a it's a marathon of of stuff and it's a marathon to put it together so let's talk the book what do you guys want to talk about well everything (laughs) (laughs) but to begin with um can you tell us why you were interested in the book why you thought of making a play of it Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, um, as so, I'm the director of the podcast, but I my assistant director is also the narrator, and the two of us together are co-creators. Her name's Olivia. Um, so uh, she and I met through Ballarat National Theatre, and we uh, in 2018 they did a play. It went for like maximum of two hours. Um, it was a little adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. She played. Um, Elizabeth Bennett. I was cast as Jane Bennett and we'd done a few shows together before. We'd had a bit of fun on stage, but this was this was different. This production is unlike any other production that I'd ever worked on before. And the whole cast became kind of like family because um, Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen have such a special place in everyone's hearts. Everyone that loves Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, you kind of bond over it. Yeah, absolutely. So the cast stayed in contact unlike any cast I've ever met before. So when the pandemic happened, like I'm sure you guys had your different experiences in your different countries. So for us over here, in March, things started to get really uncomfortably serious. And for our theatre, we had shows planned, we had all sorts of stuff planned and everything just started closing. The theatre company was just like, we have to cancel everything. And it was like, what do we do? So we as a cast from that production decided to get together and just read the old script together. And then we'll, Olivia and I were like, what if we just read the script in front of other people? And then we had to start talking about licensing issues and things. But the thing about Pride and Prejudice itself is the book doesn't need you to have any licensing for it. The play does. So Olivia and I were like, hey, why don't we just do the book? That can't be that hard. Like, come on, we just, and we'll get everyone to read their characters. That's easy. We'll just, we'll just do that. And I'm so lucky then that both of us were really ignorant to the amount of work because as we learned, then we had a higher standard of ourselves and, and I like had to learn how to um, audio edit and stuff like that. But 
yeah, it came from a place of, we were just thinking our mums would listen to it. And we've now, we've just hit 100,000 downloads. So it's been pretty big. And yeah, to have people all over the world, like you guys are like, hey, do you want to? So that's that's a big deal. But for, for us, it was like Pride and Prejudice is special to us. And we're going to be going through a really difficult time. And that's going to be nice and wholesome. Maybe other people will feel like that too. And it wasn't long before other people started messaging us from all over the world being like, yeah, it's really dark where we are at the moment, but this is getting us through, which, gosh, you guys have asked one question. I've just been talking nonstop, but um, something we noted as well, we read a really interesting article on how um, the first Austenites formed, which was like World War One. Um, British soldiers were prescribed Jane Austen to help with PTSD. Um, so uh, the author of Winnie the Pooh, Milne, he was one of those Austenites who just, they would just get together and read these stories together. And so we're looking, um, you know, a hundred years later when we're, we're sitting here have experienced a pandemic on all different sides of the globe. And here are we through multiple different podcasts, you know, united by this one book. It's because we're all coming together to be like, this just, it's so wholesome and beautiful and it sparks joy. Is that an experience that you guys have had with the book as well? What does it make you feel? I think I first read the book back in school when we were introduced to Wuthering Heights, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, you know, in the library. But the experience I've had reading it every few years again is so much different compared to the first time or the previous time. And every time I notice that I'm relating to it a bit more, and I'm finding instances that I haven't read before. Maybe a letter that I didn't notice or a situation where the conversation's more interesting now than later. And I think both of us bonded over the fact that we loved the book more than any other ones that we've read before compared to fiction or nonfiction. And it's amazing. Well, I have read the book at least 15 times and it's just like, you know, anytime I'm sad now, my father just tells me, go and read Pride and Prejudice, you'll be all right. <laughs> um, I, I really love the book. I love the characters. I love Elizabeth Bennet. And um, it's just very, well, of course, in modern times, you know, it's very close to what we experienced during the pandemic and all, and you know, the social distancing, mm -hmm. <laughs> keeping uh, to, six meters apart and all but apart from that um i have very deep feelings for elizabeth bennett what i do like is how much i can relate to her but i also love how i can relate to all the other characters there's a bit of wickham in me there's a bit of darcy in me there's a bit of caroline wingley in me <laughs> they're all there and i i really love how I'm sorry, I'm just going to go on please, and on and please. never stop. <laughs> um, I, I really love how Jane Austen is not, I feel like she's not overstating things. You know, like Caroline Bingley is not very villainous. I mean, she's just exactly who she is and she's very human, you know, mm. she's not evil. And Elizabeth Bennet has faults, she's not perfect. Mm. That's what I love about it, it's, it's very human. Yeah, I think there is something that she does really well is captures what each character wants 
very clearly and in every scene you know very clearly what each person wants and what they're, what they're going for and what they as a, as a human being will do to get it. And I think that's why you find yourself in so many characters is that you're like, oh, I've done that before. I've wanted the thing and went about trying to get it that way. <laughs> Especially when Mr. Collins says, ma'am, those are excellent boiled potatoes. I really felt that. <laughs> In your bones. Who doesn't love a potato? It's a universal concept. Like, you also got Gollum over in Lord of the Rings being like, you know, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. Like, he gets the potatoes concept. Well, I, I love how you're comparing Gollum and Mr. Gollum. Yeah. That comparison was, that was amazing. <laughs> like, bring it in. Who doesn't love a good potato? <laughs> It's a truth, universally acknowledged. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And then, you know, there's also um, Mr. Collins' wife, Mrs. Collins, who is Charlotte. She's also so relatable how, you know, you need to sometimes just come down to reality and know what you need to do, even though it may not be the most pleasurable outcome. Mm. That's something that really lands on quite a deep level is Charlotte. The fact that um, Austin gives you the characters who decide now, nah, like I may end up destitute, I don't care. I don't want to be with that man. And then you have someone who very practically had to say, this is, this is the option for me and I'm going to choose what is best for me, knowing that it will benefit her children knowing that it will benefit her family. It's quite an incredible sacrifice knowing that there will be moments, you know, like you just know there will be moments when she's waking up in the morning or going to sleep at night and it's just her and that silence. And she has to resolve that this is what she has chosen for herself and that she chose right. And even though there will be moments where it'll be difficult, where she will know that she wanted more, and that maybe she could have risked more and gotten it, that she has chosen this for herself because she believed that this level of comfort was, she was worth that level of comfort. And that with her children, like at the end with her being pregnant and you know that she's about to have that baby. Um, and you know that she wanted more because when you get to the end and she finds out about Darcy and, and um, Elizabeth, she removes their family so that she can both celebrate with Elizabeth, knowing that that was what was going to happen there and knowing that that was like Elizabeth went all in, took the risk and, and had the win. Um, so she gets to celebrate vicariously through her friend and have that shared joy. Um, but also that she, like Lady Catherine erupts and Charlotte just goes, nope, we're leaving. Let's, let's go back to, to uh, Meryton and, and see my family. And I'm just going to have this baby over here. No, thank you. So she knows. She's, she's aware that whole time. And it's that soft, quiet heartbreak. I think when someone doesn't say, you know, and then Charlotte was thinking about it at night, you know, because you as a human being have been there. No, I was just saying so many of us have been there or you know, we are lonely or depressed and just want some company and then you just settle for whatever is there because, I mean, you know, it's not the time to have high expectations. So, yeah, I really feel Charlotte at some point. 
and another thing was how unless you speak up for yourselves others will take control of your narrative like how Darcy took control of Bingley and Jane's narrative and kind of broke them because they weren't open or extroverted about their own feelings and I, I understand that because unless in our modern situation also you put a step down and say this is what I want others will just assume you don't and just block the path for you that is such a powerful thing that this story comes out with because you can see it in both Bingley and Jane's arc. At the end, you see, um, like, for example, Darcy's really critical line that Darcy says is, okay, so I told Bingley and he was quite justly angry with me. Bingley, that beautiful Labrador of a man, was furious, like actual genuine anger with with Darcy. And Darcy has to say to Elizabeth, you know, he was angry. I told him everything. And I, I just, he fully gives his heart to his best friend and says, I was wrong. And there is a solution here. But he sits in the discomfort of that difficult decision. And Bingley does forgive him. But first you see Bingley has hurt for that whole time and then says, no, I'm going to choose what I want. And he goes after it and goes all in with Jane. And you can see in that struggle, like um, when Elizabeth walks into the room on the minikid, she can tell that she's walked in on the two of them have clearly discussed, you know, uh, like, and and he's put his heart out there for Jane and he doesn't know how to do it, but he's like, okay, I'm here. And then he like awkwardly, whispers to Jane and runs out of the room and then Jane blurts out like okay we're getting married and he's gone to tell dad and she's sort of kind of shell-shocked and excited all at once but then you see her arc as well because she turns to um Elizabeth and says to her how much um it cost her for Caroline to have done what she did um and then Elizabeth shows her her arc with her not saying to Jane, well, Darcy had a hand in it too, because she understands that just how much it cost her sister. And when you when you said, Palomi, that it's other people setting your narrative, and you see Elizabeth resist that constantly. And I think this is why people love her. Elizabeth knows what her um and the the term for this is your inheritance codes. So you know when you were born, the exact path that is set out for you. And Lady Catherine knows that. And she, she says it to, to multiple characters all the time. She's sitting there just being like, oh yes, you're gonna be a governess. And, and yes, you're gonna inherit this and you won't because you know, you don't get the inheritance of your entire whatever it is. Inheritance codes are so strong in that period. And the fact that speaking your truth costs so much in that period it's just something that you can relate to so I think feeling Elizabeth Bennett go through her story it almost feels like she's a champion of your own heart in doing that no 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 I'm gonna say this I don't want this right now and she even does it when her opinion changes drastically at other points really putting her heart on the line but you feel like there's someone who's even if she gets it wrong, God, living it honestly for you, and gosh, it feels so special to be watching someone else do that, particularly when you are in an environment where the cost of living honestly may be too high. 
not everyone has the opportunity to live honestly like that. You can do it sometimes with small things, but the expectations of our societies and family, the school around us, our communities, sometimes you don't get that choice. And sometimes it's because of good reasons, like, you know, you have good expectations on you. And sometimes it's because you may have someone in your environment that is, is not healthy for you and, and may be causing some sort of damage. Um, and just saying that, I know that um, just in case any of our listeners are triggered by that, make sure that you reach out to appropriate um, support services or um, if you only need a little bit of a support, go go reach out to some Jane Austen and, and have a bit of a read <laughs> and live vicariously through those characters. But yeah, it's um, to have people championing their truth is such a big thing. I've done that thing where I talk a lot again. <laughs> Do you guys have favourite scenes? Couldn't we, I feel like we could like, you know, when you reach other people who are into the story, you could talk for hours. Do you guys have favorite scene? I feel like I relate more to Elizabeth and her narration during her long walks a lot, especially since the end scene also of her and Rasi walking together and actually Telling each other that they love each other happens during a walk. I feel like that kind of thing is my my favorite. There is a section that's actually um, my favorite bit, and it's during one of her walks. Um, let me see if I can find it. I will have a note in here somewhere. Talk amongst yourselves while I flip through the novel. I mean, Ashwin and I both usually say that whenever we are feeling like there's too much on our minds, we tend to go for long walks. And Ashwin can walk for hours. And I tend to go to my park nearby and walk for a few hours, pet some cats and come back. No, actually, I mean, I, I took inspiration from Elizabeth. So every time I feel low, I think of Elizabeth and how much better she felt after the walk. So yeah, it really does help. Um, I think I really very unpopular opinion but I kind of relate to Darcy in parties you know just being the aloof one who doesn't want to talk to anybody <laughs> what a mood he's a definitely a social mood I, like and then Elizabeth's like well why don't you fake it till you make it and he's like what are you talking about <laughs> just pretend to like people you'll get there <laughs> So, like she bosses him around and he's just like you're so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah no Darcy is um, a great character I love how much he reads um, I love how knowledgeable he is and I also love how people like Mrs. Bennett can definitely not uh, relate to anything he says because I'm a math PhD student so you know there's a lot of people who don't understand anything I say they're just like oh my gosh here's another boring nerd uh. all right I think I'm in the right zone I think it might be chapter 50 oh my gosh oh, like you guys are sitting there impatiently waiting for it no worries no worries at all. Uh, I really love how your book is covered in, you know, so many notes. Yeah, it's um. So because we adapted the novel, 
it's fascinating because there's things that people will interpret. So you get to see stuff like um, the way that the BBC um, TV series and the and the uh, the ninth. Uh, the 2005 film, the way they both adapted. So you've reached the point in the text where you're like, oh, so this section, this is where they took that from. To, so they've both really honoured Austen's text. And unless you're reading the novel, you're not really, um, I think, acknowledging quite the, the amount of work that both of those productions put in to bringing it to life like that. Um, yeah, okay. So I haven't found this section yet. It's, um, gosh. Oh, I'm going to find it. Okay, so um, I'm just going to dump it down. But it's in that general area. So she says, um, Elizabeth is on this walk and she's sitting there agonising over um, everything that Darcy has done to make the elopement take place. So she finds out what it is and she's like, oh my gosh, he's done this. He's sat in a room with someone that he despises above everything. A guy who is like... He's not just uh, what what Mrs. Gardner calls mercenary. He tried to groom a teenage girl. So this is a, a, like what we would now openly classify as a pedophile. He tries to groom a teenage girl so that he can be mercenary and get the money involved and also take revenge at the same time. It's quite a really brutal, callous thing that he does that has a negative impact on many, many people. Now, um, she's sitting there being like he had to sit in a room with this person he had to speak to my sister who wasn't listening to him it was bringing up all his own stuff into his face and then he, she's like and the fact that he also had to speak to um, the housekeeper that had assisted with him so there was multiple people there were multiple people involved that he and the discomfort that Darcy had to go through when he's not a social being and she's like, you know, he was doing it for his sister's honor or whatever. What, what was he doing it for? I'm not quite identifying this. And then the line, my favorite quote from the entire novel, her heart did whisper that he had done it for her. And it's the first time she actually begins to hope that her respect for him is returned. And that's the first part of it. The respect she has for him is returned. And based on that respect and knowing that he would respect her, knowing that that would turn into an unconditional love. And because that, her heart did whisper he had done it for her, is looking at a door knowing everything beyond it, everything that she could possibly hope for, knowing that one hope would lead into another like dominoes. And you feel it and you know that crossing, crossing that single threshold would be everything in the world. And even if it didn't eventuate into anything else, knowing that quietly, if they didn't get married, if they didn't, that there is someone in the world that would respect her as she respects them. That's, and Which goes back to the speaking your own truth and that would have been speaking her own truth that got her there, even though she quite messed up at the beginning of it with the, you know, saying to him, well, you, you treated looking badly and finding out later that, that that wasn't the case. It's quite a big thing to live with your heart on your sleeve like that. So yeah, that's my favorite quote. And it comes from, as you said, one of those moments where she's out walking. Mm. 
too many pretty words, pretty situations. Yeah, and so so picturesque, so peaceful. Having the the time to you know sit and actually think out situations isn't something I think all of us have a chance to do. You know, the hustle and bustle of everyday life. Yeah, and sometimes with lockdowns, that that feeling of not being able to get out into the world with, during the pandemic. Like, um, I know for us, like there were many times when um, you know we'd have our thirty minutes of what we would jokingly call state-sanctioned exercise. Um, so. I, you know, Melbourne went into a pretty um, tough lockdown um, after, like, you know, France was going into lockdown, a few other places, Italy, um, Germany had some really tough lockdowns as well. And then um, us down here in Victoria, we had a, a state of disaster, it was called. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so we went into lockdown and I, going through picking the sounds that I was putting through when Elizabeth would go through a walk and she would start thinking to herself, or Jane would find her outside somewhere. And choosing that beautiful countryside ambience so people could hear the sound of um, there's birds, there's winds, there's a rooster. You can faintly hear a dog barking. So when people are listening to the podcast and they're hearing those moments where characters are talking outside, you can hear that. And I wanted to give people that moment of escape. So it's no longer just you're escaping into the pages of your book or your Kindle. You can hear the, that that there are no walls around the character and there's just sky above them and and fields and fields beyond. And we wanted to give people that opportunity to escape if they were somewhere trapped in, in pandemic land. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. And uh, can I just say it's a, an amazing choice because you know generally people choose Shakespeare when it comes to plays or you know. Um, adaptation yeah. so it's it's nice to see a bit of you know, representation for women <laughs> authors yeah <laughs> ladies yeah yeah absolutely yeah and, yeah. and uh, also the fact that Jane Austen has been rather controversial uh, you know in terms of um, a lot of people debating whether Pride and Prejudice was actually feminist or whether it was just a um, you know guide to being a gold digger sort of thing um choosing a right partner choosing the most wealthy yeah, partner yeah mm. so what are your thoughts on that you know i'd actually uh, argue strongly that jane austen was a feminist and one of the reasons why i say this like you get um a few years down the track and then the Bronte sisters come into the picture and a few of them had some very derogatory things to say about Jane Austen, which was essentially that um, chick lit is not worth, like it's not literature. We're looking at this now. Literature has developed so much and you can tell because Austen's way of writing is much closer to Shakespeare than it is to us. She's, and you can see the craft in the way she writes. Um, this is me just taking a snap back at the, the Bronte sisters that uh, that said, you know, Jane Austen's not real literature. The no, you can tell because every narrator in every Jane Austen novel has their own voice and the way it is written is very different. The narrator voice of persuasion is very different to the narrator voice of Pride and Prejudice, which is kind of like the way I'm speaking right now, which is um, multiple sentences broken up and stuck together and they're quite long. It's like two friends sitting together bantering and discussing and sharing the gossip. Persuasion is very, very different to that. 
So that's just two of her stories compared. Now, um, when I say she's closer to um, Shakespeare than she is to us, a lot of the language you read now was not necessarily accessible. So one of the things we did in the, the podcast was we worked really hard to make the language accessible so that when the narrator spoke, you would understand what was being said, even though she's using words like dilatory and disapprobation and auteur, and you don't know what those mean. But in the context and the inflection and, and the narrator visualising it, you as, as a reader can visualise it too. Now, as far as the content goes, oh, one more thing on that is that chick lit is so often dismissed based on patriarchal structures that the, the art that is created by women does not have the same value as art created by men. Now, if uh, you're going to compare um, texts like um nowadays it still happens it still happens that legally blonde is not seen as a real film compared to um you know an, a male equivalent which i'm not going to pick out because then i'll have people in there being like yeah but that's not a good comparison because i've just winged a comparison but um chiclet um uh, pop music, particularly pop that's sung by women, also also gets degraded like that. So that's a patriarchal thing that women's art content work is worth less than that of their male counterparts. So when Austen first published, like her stuff was like the negotiations were done under the her brother's names and it was published under the name of a lady she was entrepreneurial when she did it and it was all she wanted to do and she followed her own truth to be able to do it knowing that there was risks that she wasn't going to be provided for um that she was a burden she even chose to write over marriage and she knew these things that is why she had characters that were ignorant to the plight of their counterparts um, in multiple levels of society and, and characters that weren't. Pride and Prejudice itself is a critique of classist society and you can you see that in the way that when she starts talking about um, Lady Catherine de Berg and Lady Catherine's just like oh you know you're not from the same level of society as us. Now Comparatively, let's say Mr. Bennett, I think a rough translation from maybe like five, six years ago, would have, Mr. Mr. Bennett would have been worth like five mil. Like they weren't poor. They were high class. They were your equivalent of millionaires. Uh, and when you look at Bingley and, and Darcy, you're getting into double digits of millions. Like they, they were from a similar society, but there was, it was so classist that because she didn't, you know, but who were you, who was your mother? Who were your, who were your uncles and aunts? Like you're from Grace, you got family in Grace Church Street. Like, who do you think you are? Like you weren't born into this. You're not close enough to royalty to have any value. And it, it comes down to that whole always peeling away the unworthy so that um, this certain class of people can sit there at the top and be like, yeah. Now, another thing to take into account, Sir William Lucas made money from trade. Now, it might not have been the right era to be trade of human beings, but it would have been possibly trade of spices, which still was on the blood of, of poorer peoples, of persons of colour. So he made a tolerable fortune through trade and had risen to the honourable level of knighthood. 
serving the same class structures that allowed colonization. Austen wasn't completely ignorant to these things. She was subtle. And, you know, she, she, she alludes to it, not just alludes, but outright talks about it in some other, um, you know, characters uh, for the, you know, for the story. So yeah, it's, I, th I feel like Austen is more of a quiet revolutionary. And I don't think that's necessarily too surprising when um, she was she was doing revolutionary stuff on her own, like choosing not to marry, choosing um, to be a writer, that she worked really, really hard. And she didn't su see success in her lifetime. Like it wasn't until after her death that um, she began to become very successful. Um, and, you know, her family, who clearly loved her very much. Like the estate has worked really hard to make sure that her works were available and accessible to people because it's what it's what she wanted. Um, so she may not have been, um, you know, as revolutionary as some, but I think um, what she contributed was was not insignificant um, and not not ignorant either. I think she was um, more than a little aware of a lot of the things that were going on in in her world. Yeah. Uh, well, I was um, thinking more of, you know, how um, she, so if you look at, if someone just sees the TV series instead of reading the book, then it does give the feeling that Elizabeth goes to Pemberley, she sees the lovely house and suddenly she's all for Mr. Darcy. So, you know, I, I get why people think that, but um, to me, the very fact that she refused him the first time is what is, yeah. is where you can see that it is feminist, you know, a woman standing up. And, and what we see of patriarchy right now is a very dumbed down version as compared to what it was back then. Like, yeah, so. absolutely. I think you've made a really good point about her going to, um, Pemberley and stuff and that joke like in the tv series she goes oh you know when I first saw his, his grounds at Pemberley that's her actually cracking a joke so that's classic um Elizabeth Bennet is incredibly dry she has a whip that is sharper than death's sight like she knows her stuff and she riles Jane up all the time and Jane is always like I can't tell if you're serious Lizzie like what are you doing stop it you're joking again and then Lizzie's like yeah <laughs> so that's that's the banter now when you read the book um it can take you a little bit to get the vibe of the characters but it's something that we worked really hard with the pride and prejudice podcast of we did lots of rehearsals with the actors helping them find the feel of it and then we would piece all the things together and i would go back to them and be like hey this is actually a joke this was sarcasm can you can you bring that out more or i need this because um you know, this character has given us this really wonderful sarcastic thing and you've taken it seriously. So let me give you a classic example of that. The, the first, um, there's a, a ball where Charlotte and and Lizzie are there chatting and Charlotte's like, oh, you should, like Jane should be helping him on. But come on, give him a hand, give him a hand. And that's normal human banter. We still do that day to day. So in a modern world, that'd look like, yeah, he's into a, she should totally be like giving him the, the encouragement. 
And Elizabeth, like, she's not like that. Yeah, come on. Just a little bit out. Maybe send him some little winky faces. I don't know. Like, just help him on. He won't know. Gotta get out there. Like, that's the kind of fun banter. Now, when we first recorded that, um, that scene wasn't as excessively in the play. So the characters, uh, the actors playing those characters didn't have a chance to um, develop that that banter so we developed it as part of the podcast and the first takes that we did we're like let's just give it a go and see what it looks like it felt like Elizabeth and Charlotte hated one another and the reason it felt like that is because we were taking the scene seriously the first time we did it because it was like no Charlotte no no she's not like that yeah but she has to help him on like it's just the thing and that's not the tone they're playing the whole time um and so when you listen to the podcast you can hear the tone you can hear the that that banter and that is what it is it is absolute banter in it and it's the same tone that uh, lizzie uses when she says to jane at the end oh you know it's I'd like to take it from when I first saw Pemberley. And Jane's like, no, you are joking. You are not that shallow. Stop teasing. You'd be serious with me right now. And you tell me when you fell in love with this man. This is a big deal. Take this seriously, Lizzie. And then Lizzie's like, yeah, like, he respects me. Like, so you get this beautiful swing at the end between Elizabeth doing her banter and actually showing her witty little heart, that soft, tender marshmallow heart behind the wit to her sister saying, no, I really do, I really do. And it's that's what makes it stunningly breathtaking for you as, as, a, as a reader, that you're going, oh God, like, Lizzie, what are you, stop it, stop it, James being serious, be serious. And then she's like, no, um, this is the real deal, Jane. And Jane's like, oh my gosh, what? <laughs> so you, yeah, you have to take into account sarcasm, wit, dryness. <laughs> it's the same thing with Mr. Bennett. There's so many things that he says that if you don't catch the wit, you don't. It, it'd be super inappropriate for him to say. Like when he says to, Lizzie, he does this line where he says like, oh, you know, Wickham's, uh, yeah, I like Darcy. Yeah, I probably like him as much as, uh, as uh, my other son-in-law, whatever his name is. And uh, Mr. Mr. Wickham's definitely my favorite son-in-law. You know, he's not being serious. The man's life was just, his heart was out of his chest. He had a terrible time. You know, he doesn't love Wickham. You know, he's been, but if you take that one seriously, you think that Mr. Bennett's an absolute dolt, which he's not. And another moment is when he says like, ah, Mr. Collins, my favorite correspondent ever. Couldn't give him up for the world. This is great. I love letters from him. Come on, let's, what's this say? Yeah, what made my life richer for reading it? And that's not, that is absolutely not what he's saying. And you can tell when he gets to that final letter that he sends in the last chapter, Ah, oh, 61. My favourite letter of the entire... This is it. I found it. Look at me. I'm so good. I knew exactly what it was. I flipped straight through it on my annotated director's edition of Pride and Prejudice. Dear sir, I must trouble you once more for congratulations. Elizabeth will soon be the wife of Mr. Darcy. Console Lady Catherine as well as you can. But if I were you, 
I would stand by the nephew. He has more to give. Yours sincerely, etc. That's the entire letter. You can tell he's never responded to Mr. Collins ever before. And he just suddenly goes, so sir, his acknowledgement that I've received every single one of your other letters. And uh, where's my thanks? Toodaloo. Just the audacity of Mr. Bennett in that moment. It's my favorite letter of the entire, entire thing. I just feel like if um, uh, they had, the Bennetts had a WhatsApp family, WhatsApp group, it would just be like Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Bennett sharing memes and then Mrs. Bennett just going crazy, like, what is going on here? I don't get any of this. And Jane just being silent the entire time. Just, you know, everything's insane. Yes. <laughs> Occasionally Jane will heart react something Lucy has said. I'll be like, I don't get it. That would be like, I love Jane, but she would very much be like, really? Like she just takes everything so literally with her big, big heart. And then occasionally, like Kitty had put stuff in and ever, no one would ever acknowledge anything Kitty said or Mary, let's yeah. be honest. And it, Kitty's would just be replying to Lydia. That would be, and Lydia would, that would be respond like the to her. Family spammer, you know, always sending hundred photos. <laughs> Has anyone seen my bonnet? <laughs> Going into town. Oh my God. And she put in like those videos where you like zoom in. He was like, look at this hot guy. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> she'd be like posting gifts, being like gifts. Like Kitty would post a picture and be like, only pictures of hot people in this chat and then gifts of people crying so that she wouldn't have to look at it when she opened up the chat. <laughs> Yeah, I would probably put that group. If Mr. Darcy was on that group, he would probably put it on mute and never open it. <laughs> I Mr. Darcy to the family group chat. Oh my <laughs> gosh. You can imagine him sitting on his phone somewhere and like Lizzie coming into the room being like, did you see that? And be like, I have had this muted since I was at it. Nope. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You can imagine her and Darcy having their own group chat and her sending screenshots from the family group chat to that one. I know you've got it muted. Thought you'd find this funny. <laughs> and him responding with a thumbs up. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, since you spoke of Mary Bennett, uh, I've always wondered why Mary Bennett and Mr. Collins were not a thing. I thought, or, or Mr. Darcy and Mary Bennett, you know, given her, um, shall we say, intellectual pursuits. Well, now, <laughs> that is what I've never heard anyone propose before, and you have definitely got me intrigued. <laughs> but let's go back to. Mary and Mr. Collins, because that is acknowledged in the 2005 film. So there's that moment where you see Mary Bennett's heart actually break. It's very beautifully done and it's done. Mary's story is very wonderfully told in the background there. So those people who've watched it are like, they know, they've watched Mary in the background. They know she was angling for Mr. Collins and, and was a little heartbroken. But it's actually covered in this book. Like that was that was true to this book. Um, so you, uh, the narrator goes into that Mary is like, 
well, you know, he's silly, but I could absolutely educate him. You know, I could do this. This is great. And she fully has this whole, because the narrator, this is important, the narrator um, captures the internal moments of change of, of different characters, which is something that um, I don't regret the choice that um, Olivia and I made to have Olivia narrate. She's a magnificent narrator. Um, and we made it, it work to try and show the difference between when Lizzie was talking and when, when the narrator was talking. But um, artistically, if I were to do the project again, there are a few things I would do differently. And one of the things that I would do is make sure it was a different narrator because the narrator um, captures the internal moments of personal change the characters go through. Um, Mary's um, acknowledgement that she could definitely see herself happily placed with Mr Collins is one of them. Another one is when uh, Mr Darcy realises he's got feelings for Elizabeth and he, he, the quote is something like he begins to notice the dangers of paying Elizabeth, to, Elizabeth Bennet too much attention. He knows. Um, so, and there's a whole, the whole start chapters, it's funny, you don't actually get much of Lizzie's internals. You get lots of Darcy's. The, the narrator is very much with Darcy. And then later on, when she lands all that stuff at Darcy's feet, it's not him you see it through, it's her, which is brutal because she's the one that has to wear the blow of being wrong. So the narrator very much follows people's internal changes. So you capture, you mentioning specifically, you know, why did Mary not end up with Mr. Collins? That's very much a thing that the narrator explores with Mary, it dawning on her that, that, that it's a thing, but it's the meddling of Mrs. Bennett that really, Mrs. Bennett should have just gone, you know what? Look at my young again daughter. Have you met Mary? She likes to read these sermons play the piano forte Mary, uh, and Mrs Bennet doesn't do that she's just like you know Lizzie needs to be secure she, but that goes to you know Mrs Bennet acts first and asks questions later classic Lydia yeah but I mean I, I also think there's a bit of Charlotte Lucas in there just you know interfering trying to secure herself oh definitely the narrator also spends a whole section of time on that because Charlotte when she's there consoling Elizabeth that's when her moment of change happens she goes me I've got this because she knows she would be well aware that um, Mary would have been a good match and that Mr Collins could have been you know but she just quietly sits in the background being like I will leave this door open until it closes and that's how she makes it happen and it's fantastic you know you kind of see how Darcy's very antisocial but when he is kind of flirted with he knows how to shut it down quite well and the first time when <laughs> Elizabeth, Miss Bingley and Jane and all go over to Mr. Bingley's place and he's writing a letter and how Miss Bingley's just all over him. Oh my god, yeah. you write so well. And he's like, come on, right? It's fine, I write normal. Come on. Stop overdoing it. And how Elizabeth is just like awkward. He's like, Am I at the third wheel here? He knows how to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> Have you 
you absolutely won the money there. I don't know if you've heard that section of, of our adaption, but um, so Molly Vandervale that plays um, Caroline Bingley, she gave me a few options and then she and I workshopped it and we decided to go with a really overly flirtatious approach. So she's sitting right next to Darcy and she's like sleazily going like, oh, Mr. Darcy, you're right so well. Like it's really, really flirtatious to the point that everyone else in the room would be uncomfortable. And that's what we want. We wanted to give the audience that feeling of why what Caroline, like absolutely like this is why everyone else is uncomfortable. Like it's overt. And then um, she does it later on a few times as well. But Darcy mentions it at the end when they he has proposed to um, Elizabeth. It's chapter 60, I think, um, that she gives uh, Darcy, here we go, I knew it, opening. Elizabeth's spirit soon rising to playfulness again. She wanted Mr. Darcy to account for his having ever fallen in love with her. How could you begin? said she. I can comprehend your going along charmingly when you had once made a beginning, but what could set you off in the first place? And then he has to explain himself. And then she says, uh, so he, he swoons her straight away, which is really beautiful. He says, I cannot fix on the hour or the spot or the look or the words which laid the foundation. It's too long ago. Come on, I was in the middle before I knew I had begun. Like, and then she goes, well, you know, my beauty, you had early withstood. As for my manners, well, my behaviour to you was at least bordering on uncivil. And they have this banter, banter and he says, you know, the liveliness of your mind. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, and then she says, um, she says that the reason um, she, she gives him the answer. Um, oh, here we go. Had you not been really amiable, you would have hated me for it. But in spite of the pains you took to disguise yourself, your feelings were always noble and just. And in your heart, you thoroughly despised the persons who so uh, assiduously courted you. Now, that assiduous courting is referencing specifically um, Caroline Bingley and every other woman of his class who would have just been like, look, we both have fortunes. One plus one equals two. Let's make it happen. And he was like, ew. So, uh, and then she's like, there you go. I've saved you the trouble of accounting for it. And really, all things considered, I begin to think that's perfectly reasonable. Like, you know, you just were like, oh my gosh, that's someone who didn't just like me for my money. And then he like actually looked at her properly. So, yes. I'll let other people talk. I'm doing it again. I can't stop talking about Jane Austen. The the ending of the story, because, um, you know, Jane and Bingley, they're obviously very much in love, but what after? Will they continue to stay in love? Do you think they will be, they will have a forever after? And the same thing for Darcy and Elizabeth, because, you know, um, at some point Darcy might just get tired of Elizabeth's liveliness or Darcy might get too boring for Elizabeth. Uh, do you think any of them might end up like Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett? Because at some point... That is a really interesting question. And you know what? 
I'm going to give you my thoughts on this, but then I think uh, there's a playwright that I think would love to chat to you guys. Um, her name is Emma Wood, um, and she's written a play called um, Mr. Bennett's Bride, and it's a prequel to Pride and Prejudice, and it's the story of that. So I'll, I'll connect you guys with um, Emma if you want to chat to her as well. Um, but I, I think that um, what's really important with Jane and Bingley. So there's like you're. I love that you were like you know. Will they get bored with one one another? And my thoughts are, did Jane die in childbirth? Like, you know, did the, the mortality rate of women was really high? How many children did they lose? Because I know that. Um, so this was set. Uh, so in my hometown, Ballarat at the goldfields, the, the infant mortality right there was 50%. So they would have like, let's say have seven children and, and you know, a whole heap of them would, would die. Like some, of, some people lost 80% of their kids. Um, it was brutal. And this was set 50 years prior to that. And it wasn't as, as intense as a settler town in, in a, a non, um, colonially established um, uh, country. But um, if we're talking, um, you know, like 1800s England, yeah, they were higher class, but um, there were still so many things that you battle through. Because like, let's look at Sense and Sensibility, how close, how close the um, Dashwood sisters came to losing one another before any of them had even been married. Um, and Austin doesn't, um, like in Pride and Prejudice, there's not really a talking about um, siblings that have passed, but like you look in Persuasion and there's two accidents in there. So um, one of the girls falls and hits her head and it changes her personality. Like it really, really rattles her. And then you've got um, the young boy that falls out of the tree and dislocates his collarbone and that's a whole thing. Um, so, um, and it is jokingly mentioned in Pride and Prejudice because you have, yeah, Jane gets quite sick. Um, but Pride and Prejudice is more of a rom-com than a romantic drama. So it's your comedy stuff. So um, when Mrs. Bennett says, people don't die of trifling codes, like, you're like, mm, yeah, they do. Every damn day, girl, like, how can a mother do that to her child? And Mr. Bennett just dryly is like, all right, you can have the horse. And Jane's like, ah, can I please not arrive to the boy I like's house smelling like a horse when it's meant to rain? But she's so sweet. She's just like, okay. And Lizzie's like, what are you doing? And then the next day she's like, stuff this. And so you can see why she traipses right through the countryside, like, stuff you all, I'm going to Netherfield. <laughs> like, yeah, so it's, um, just to loop back to the whole thing that we're talking about before of, of like the point of this conversation, which was, are they happily ever after? I think, I think, yeah, I think, I hope, yeah. And I think that's what Austin gives you at the end is hope that you could find someone that you respect and that respects you enough to grow with you and to love you forever. Yeah.
because I mean I, I can probably see it a little bit with Darcy and Elizabeth but it just makes me feel like you know Mr. Bennett kind of had the same thing for Mrs. Bennett she was beautiful lively you know when she was young and then suddenly she just gets on his nerves and her own nerves all the time um, and, uh. <laughs> and and you know Bingley um, is known to just fall for a lot of beautiful women he's kind of a playboy so not in the traditional sense but ah. you know so at some point he's just you know we'd have sex with Jane and then be like eh, tap that damn it whoa what next oh okay 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 <laughs> that's a big call so I would say I would go to this at the end where um Darcy realizes that um he he reads it that Bingley, it's a forever thing. And that um, you can see the social impact on Bingley through the eyes of the other characters, that it actually really hurt him. So that's, so for him it was different. And then when Darcy realizes it was different, that's when he goes back and is like, I was wrong, she did actually like you and she was in town. And that's why he was angry. That's his story arc, is that he understands the cost of it because he mattered and the love for Jane mattered and the pain it caused him mattered because it was the real deal. Um, and the difference I think with Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett is that Mrs. Bennett doesn't respect Mr. Bennett. It's not that he didn't respect her. He gave, he would have given her the foundation of respect and maybe Emma will contradict this for me with whatever beautiful thing that she created for the play that she wrote. But um, I think uh, with uh, Mrs. Bennett, she manipulates him. She doesn't respect anyone. And, but she's not necessarily a nice person. So that's why his respect dimmed with time. And you see like with, um, at the ending there with Wickham and Lydia, um, he loses respect for her and love for her long before she does of him, but then they both fall into debauchery. And, you know, that's the same lifestyle they were going to lead because I think Austin is very much, this goes back to speaking your truth. And it's not just the quiet truths you, uh, the, the loud truths, it's the quiet truths too. And the quiet truth there with Lydia and Wickham was not when they loudly got married. It was the, the quiet things they'd said throughout their entire lives of them not having morals, um, that they were so changeable. And that's the same thing with Mrs. Bennett. And maybe Mr. Bennett didn't recognize that to begin with. And that is why Lizzie values Darcy so much is because, and this is what changed for her. It wasn't when she saw Pemberley, it was when she saw him and his respect. And that is what made the difference. He went from not respecting her properly to respecting her on a deep level enough to fundamentally change over a long period of time at personal risk to himself. So the sacrifice that he made is what made the difference. He proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would love her whether or not she loved him back. That's a big deal. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, he was also, in a sense, wearing his heart on his sleeve. such a big thing and that's feminist right there that's no toxic masculinity that's him making it a... i think in the end they mentioned how lydia would keep sending letters to elizabeth about sending her money 
and i'm just like at one point i feel like elizabeth should put an end to that part of her family you know it's i think this is something i i i really respect about this part of the story so for the listeners who may not be completely in touch with this the letter that we're talking about is um in chapter 61 my dear lizzy i wish you joy If you love Mr. Darcy half as well as I do, my dear Wickham, you must be very happy. It is great comfort to have you so rich. And when you have nothing else to do, I hope you will think of us. I am sure Wickham would very much like a, a place at court, and I do not think we shall have quite enough money to live on without some help. Any place would do of about three or four hundred a year. But uh, however, do not speak to Mr. Darcy about it if you would rather not. So she comes to her as a Yeah, she's like, you know, you don't 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 need to tell Mr. Darcy if you don't want to, but uh, as your your sister here needs some money. And what's um really beautiful is the section after it, which is about how Jane and Elizabeth navigate this. As it happened that Elizabeth had much rather not. She endeavoured in answer to put an end to every entreaty and expectation of the kind. Such relief, however, as it was in her power to afford, by the practice of what might be called economy in her own private expenses. So the money that she had as the the wife of Mr. Darcy and as the daughter of Mr. Bennet, so she frequently sent the money, um, and Jane did it too. Um, uh, for some little assistance toward discharging their bills whenever they left a place. Um, so Lydia often wrote to them and them as sisters yeah. went, I don't care about the manner of her asking. I love her and as a woman in this world, she deserves the safety of it. Mm. And that's quite a beautiful thing for a sister, yeah. sister to do and a difficult thing to do when, as you said, to cut out the toxic members of your family Like, do you just go, no, but she ends up bringing Lydia to, to Pemberley when Wickham's out of town. Like, they're like, not him, but you can. Like, that's, um, and Lydia may not have changed, but it gave her the safety of, of sisterly love, which is pretty special. Mm. I feel like she always had like uh, rose colored glasses on her. She always, you know, made it seem like things were ten times better than they actually were. Even when she came back after getting married, yeah. oh, I had a grand wedding. This happened. I'm so lucky. Even when she knows she's not in a good situation, yeah. or maybe she didn't admit to herself. I, I don't think she saw it that way because I mean, I think she was kind of a, what's the word? Um, flashy is not the word. Just a superficial person, you know. So. That's yeah. all she really saw. That oh, I wore a good dress, and you know, I have a ring on my finger, and <laughs> that's all she saw. She doesn't actually care of what mm-hmm. goes behind all of this. Yeah, and what it costs other people. Yeah. I was just happy that Elizabeth and Jane tried to make sure that the younger ones didn't get affected by Lydia, yeah. and made sure that they were groomed under themselves rather than going away to Lydia and living with them. Yeah. like kitty and kitty ends up turning out well it says turning out really well and you know mary looks after her mother and then being away from her sisters and not living in the shadow of their beauty and reputation all the time actually flourishes which is really sweet yeah i i imagine that mary would have become a governess and done really well at it yeah i mean this might be like out of context but I think we both were talking about recently the I don't 
I should ask this or not. <laughs> okay, it's not Jane Austen, but um, you know the new TV show on Netflix, Bridgerton. Bridgerton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the kind of storyline that is common with Pride and Prejudice is the marriage and taking care of the younger siblings. Do you think romanticizing that period kind of overshadows the actual stories behind it? Hmm. I think it depends on how you interpret it. I think um now I haven't read The Duke and I, which is what um that first part of Bridgerton is based on. Um I have bought it to read. Um but I think they're really um probably in in different genres almost because Austen like Pride and Prejudice isn't taking itself too seriously, but Bridgerton is like definitely self-aware like they know that they're they're taking the mickey of of all of the like picking out all the good parts the juiciest bits and be like yeah let's have a story with a lot of sex scenes and you know a questionable sexual assault at the end there yeah uh but the which i'm not a fan that they included that i really i think that they could have uh gotten through the plot achieve the same aims without having a sexual assault in it. However, um uh, la, 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 la. I think um something that they have done wonderfully which I'm trying to think who did it beforehand there was a YouTube st- series that got stuck from covid which was also wonderfully uh, like blindly quote unquote uh cast um which had Jimmy Chan in it it was like was it refinery 29 i don't know if you've seen this netflix series and it was it was that kind of caliber and it was so good and i haven't seen if there's any follow up to it but the fact that bridgerton has a non whitewashed um cast is fantastic i think that's um magnificently refreshing for a genre that is as way too many white white people in it white people stories just fighting about like la, 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 la. like at some point you got to have something that isn't white like uh, it's just cuz otherwise you're going to be seeing the same things um and that's why representation matters if it's not a story of all of us it's not complex enough and it's not true um so I think Bridgerton is is critical for having that that in there. Um but it is definitely almost pantomiming the the experiences that that Jane Austen represents because um the way Austen was doing it she was writing it at the time in that society so she's going to be seeing so many more subtleties and, and things that that um Bridgerton which is just reveling in that um environment as a fictional environment whereas Austen was seeing it as as a real environment with fictional characters was that an okay answer gosh i was winging that <laughs> yeah that's completely fine what were your thoughts on it i honestly love a lot of movies and books based in that period but jane austen has the touch that none of them do in terms of feelings and the words that they speak they try to convey and also like how strong the topic of pride and prejudice is clearly shown in the book 
like the conversation between Lady Catherine when she comes and bombards them in the middle of the night and to talk to Lizzie that hey you don't deserve this and how she retaliates I mean you don't see that kind of language because uh, in the shows they are so scared of insulting <laughs> a lot of people by being so outspoken so I really like how it's clear what they want and whereas Bridgerton I liked the show but the story was so repeated you know oh we'll fake being a couple and we'll try to get someone else the story is very saturated yeah but, yeah. Yeah, but Jane Austen has a uniqueness to it but any book of hers you read there's a female leading character so that's what we love yeah I haven't watched Bridgerton because uh it's it's not sorry it's not Jane Austen and um, <laughs> I'm just very worried of anything that is not Jane Austen or the Bronte sisters or BBC in general uh, so yeah and, and Netflix come on no, I'm just sorry this isn't happening this is adorable <laughs> I would, um, I'd love to hear your opinion on it and to see, I binged it because it, 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 it's not like you need to invest much in it. There was a point where it was like four in the morning and I was just sitting there like skip 10 seconds, watch a little bit, skim 10 seconds. Like it, it's that, it's that level. Whereas if you watch the BBC Pride and Prejudice, you would have it on the whole time and all the movie, like, I would say the movie's background stuff, but you can't kill your eyes off it. Um, the name of the cinematographer is escaped me, but he's um, fantastic. Just the imagery of it is is as poetic as the story is romantic. So, yeah. also um, Colin Forrest. Yeah. I painted this one for Ashwini, you know, the, oh my god, you can't see it. The last scene where she's waiting in, in the movie yeah, and Darcy yeah. comes walking. I painted it for her. It's one of the best oh, gifts someone has gift. given me. I should give it to you. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but, Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, Liana. We had a lovely time. Um, uh, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and yes, we look forward to having a lot more, if possible. Um, yep. But yeah, thank you. Yeah. And we'll see yeah. you again. Thanks. <laughs> I'll just do a little um, wrap up at the end. So um, for those of you who may have start, my name is Liana and I'm the director of Ballarat National Theatre's Pride and Prejudice podcast, where we adapted the entire novel as like an audio book, but it's dramatized. So we have a director obviously directing actors and actors acting out all of the different characters, which brings out a whole heap of the subtlety of Austen. Um, so it's, you can find it by searching for Pride and Prejudice on, um, any of the streaming services we, we're not on youtube mind you yet um we, we'll get there but um yeah spotify apple Podcasts, or if you just go to www.prideandprejudicepodcast.com you'll be able to find us there so yeah, yeah. all the links will be put in the description of this episode and yes please go check it out i'm sure it's amazing uh, as you've already heard <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Wonderful. And look forward to another episode as long as we get with Olivia and Yeah, yeah. Yeah, together. Yes. You guys are never going to get us get us to stop talking. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>